Lord, thank you so much for the privilege we have of talking about your word and digging deeper today. I just ask that you be present here with us. Um, there's so much, Lord, in, in just these tiny little prophetic books. Um, we, we are only going to be able to scratch the surface, but I just thank you for the chance we have to talk about them and think about them and um, just review your grace and your goodness and your um, kindness to us. Thank you, Lord. Amen. I teach in the undergrad religion department, so, um, and so I've been able to have the privilege of every year teaching the prophets class to the theology majors there, and um, for the last five years. And so I've found that this is really my favorite class to teach. But of course, I have all semester, and we of course include Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, um, Lamentations, etc. So, but I usually spend a week on each of these prophets. So trying to figure out how to fit them into three days was, and even that is not enough. I mean, I'm just like, I need more time. These, these are amazing. So, um, so I always tell my students, you know, you just have to, you just whet your appetite so that you want to study it more. So that's what I hope to do for you. We're going to just give kind of an overview of just prophets in general and then, you know, the personalities of prophets and then talk um, about some of the things that are relevant to the themes of these minor prophets. Um, and then we're going to start today with two of them. Tomorrow we'll do six, and then the day after that we'll do another two. I mean, tomorrow we might do five. I don't know. I haven't decided yet. We'll see how, how quickly we get through them. But um, So you have there on your handout. I should actually look at a handout to make sure I'm not missing anything that I'm saying there. Um, I'm going to do a lot of reading from them because I think this is this – is, this thing beeps at me. Um, this is what we often don't do is read the prophets. I find this. I didn't do it either. I mean, I remember in, when I took my first prophets class in seminary, I was like, I've never really read these books very much. I mean, you read them when you read through the Bible, but you don't really understand them because the language is so crazy and there's all these imagery and you're like, what is going on? I have no idea. I'm lost. So you just move on to the Gospels. Or I, I always, like, I loved Psalms reading when I was... Um, a kid and growing up, I still probably go to that. But I've come to really love the prophets because they speak to us today about the same issues that we're dealing with. And I think the reason, one of the reasons at least we don't read them is because they do speak to us. They speak hard to us. They speak to the situations we're in, the, the, the secular world that we live in, the, the sin and corruption that we face even in the church, um, the the mess of the world that we're in, and they speak strongly to it. And they are not afraid to say things that we are like, Ugh, I don't know if I could say that. Oh, I'm not sure I can say these things. So I, I find that often we don't read them also because they speak to us. Um, so we'll address some of that. But um, I want you to get a feeling for the personality of the prophets a little bit. So I'm going to read some passages. You can follow along with me. The first one is they are sensitive to evil there. You can see that on the handout, their personality. Um, so they, they are aware of it. So often we tend to, even when you hear the big evil things, you're like, oh, that's terrible, but then tomorrow you forget it because there's something else that's happened in your life. They are sensitive to not just the big evil things, but even the little things that go wrong in the world. And they are they're broken by it and they're hurt by it. So... Turn with me to Amos 8, if you want, or just listen. Um, I, I have 
tried to, um, as I read the prophets, imagine their, their personality, their passion for, for God and his truth. So this is, this is a vision that Amos is receiving. And it starts in verse 1. Thus the Lord God showed me, behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? I said, a basket of summer fruit. And the word for this is kaitz, so in Hebrew. So that's only significant because of what he, God says next. Then the Lord said to me, the end, which is ketz. So he sees this kaitz, this basket, and it's going to remind him always of the end, the ketz. The end has come upon my people, Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. The songs of the temple should be wailing in that day. So this is God's, the praises to God. And instead it's going to be this wailing. Says the Lord God, many dead bodies everywhere. They shall be thrown out in silence. Hear this, you who swallow up the needy and make the poor of the land fail. Saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? And the Sabbath that we can trade wheat. And I talk about this with my students. How often do we say that? I mean, I struggle with this too. I love the Sabbath, but if you've got something big happening and you're working on something, you're like, I just, time, sundown. Oh, shoot, now I can go do, you know. I mean, this is talking to us. This is the same kind of struggle that we face. Making the ephah small, the shekel large. So just little problems that we do, just little tweaks that we don't quite do right. Maybe little white lies falsifying the scales by deceit that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, even sell the bad wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will not forget any of their works. Shall not the land tremble for this and everyone mourn who dwells in it? All of it shall swell like the river, heave and subside like the river of Egypt. It shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon. I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like mourning for an only son and its end like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Why? Because God doesn't want them to hear it? No, because they don't want to hear it. They want to live in their sin. They want to leave God. And this is what the prophets speak hard about. They speak God's heart. They say God wants to bring his word, but you don't care. You don't listen. You do your own thing. So they are sensitive to evil, luminous and explosive language. For sake of time, I'm not going to read another one for that. You can hear that even in the one I just read. The language is hard. The language is full of imagery. The language is difficult to hear because it's very vivid. And there's a lot of the prophets that speak like this. And um, when we start talking about Hosea, we'll read some in Hosea 2 where he's describing their harlotry, their adultery against God, and he describes it in graphic terms. Why? I think it's because this is the last chance God has with these people. He's doing everything he possibly can to reach their hearts. It's not that God speaks harshly most of the time. I think this is why we often get this mixed up too, because we read there's so much of the Old Testament is the prophets, because God cared about them so much. He was trying to reach them. It was his last-ditch effort, and he said, I, I've got to do everything I possibly can. Almost all of these prophets were right around the same time, right before Israel fell and right before Judah fell. So God was at the very end saying, I've done 
everything I can do and you still don't care and you're still not listening, so what am I gonna do? I'm gonna speak explosively because then maybe, just maybe, maybe it will catch your attention. Maybe you'll think. Maybe you'll look at things a little bit differently. So they use this language that's often hard for us to hear. We tend to think about just, but off, honestly, if you read a lot of what Jesus said, and if you read it with passion, he says very similar things. This is Jesus himself speaking. This is God speaking through them. It's God's passionate heart coming out, longing for them to return to him. They were iconoclasts. What is an iconoclast? Okay, an image smasher. So what would that mean in an everyday life for, for a prophet? What might they be doing? Hmm? A naysayer, okay, so they're going against the grain, right? This is what everyone else is saying. They've got this image set up. They've got this particular way of looking at things, and they're saying, <clears throat> it's not that way at all. It's actually the other way entirely. So they, hmm? Yes, so they're, they're turning things upside down in their head, and they're, they're saying things that most people at the time would have thought were blasphemous because they were saying such strong things. So look, we'll stay in Amos, Amos 4. And he uses this um, phrase that the other prophets use a lot to talk and, you know, throughout um, God is calling his people to come to him. So, but he, he does a completely unexpected thing. So Amos 4, verse 4. Come to Bethel. Where was Bethel? What was Bethel? Okay, the house of the Lord. It was the temple. It was, where they, it was one of their worship places. So he says, come to Bethel and worship? No. Sin, right? Transgress, because he knew this is what they were doing there. So he's saying these ironic statements here. At Gilgal, another worship place, multiply transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. Proclaim and announce freewill offerings for this you love, you children of Israel, says the Lord God. So he's turning upside down. This is what they were doing. They were coming to the temple and they were offering all their sacrifices and they were doing exactly the right things on Sabbath in the temple. And then they would leave and go home and sin horribly against everyone else and completely leave God and worship other gods. And so God is saying, you know, this doesn't cut it for me. What you're doing is wrong, and your worship means nothing to me if you are not living it outside of the temple. But this was a very hard thing for the people to hear. They didn't want to hear this. Um, so actually they hated Amos, and we'll come back to this, and they, they speak very strong words against him, and they, they try to destroy him. Um, but he was willing to speak these words that show that God said, you know, your worship, which is meaningful to me. And this is why I think if you've heard that the prophets were against sacrifices, unlike the kings, um, you may have heard that somewhere. I think this is the reason. It's not that they were against sacrifices, because in many places they say, you know, sacrifices are important. But what they were against was only doing those sacrifices and not living right in the rest of their lives. And so this is what I think we often again struggle with today. We go to church on the right day. We do all the right things at church. We pay tithe. We do whatever. But what are we doing outside of that? Do our lives show that we are Adventists? Do our lives show that we are Christians? Do our lives show that we are followers of Jesus? 
I hope so, but I know I look at my own life and I, I, I'm convicted by these prophets' words because it's, it's not just a doing of the right things. God wants our hearts. He wants everything, not just a, a right form of worship. Um, lonely. So they were very lonely. They spent a lot of time in loneliness. So now we're going to read um, at least a brief thing here. Still in Amos. We'll just stay here for the sake of time. Um, Amos 5. Starting in verse 10. So often they would speak of this, some of the, the larger prophetic books, um, like Jeremiah, he spends half of the book describing his loneliness and how broken he was and how um, hurt he was by people. But, but many of the others just mention it in passing because their, their message from God is more important. But look at verse 10 here in chapter 5. They hate the one who rebukes in the gate, they abhor the one who speaks uprightly. Therefore, because you tread down the poor and take grain taxes from them, though you have built houses of hewn stone, yet you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink wine from them. For I know your manifold transgressions, your mighty sins, afflicting the just, taking bribes, diverting the poor from justice at the gate. Therefore, the prudent keep silent at that time, for it is an evil time. So he recognizes that it would be much wiser for him to stay silent. But he doesn't. He's called to speak. He's called to tell God's message. And then he says, seek good and not evil that you may live. So the Lord God of hosts will be with you. As you have spoken, hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Israel. So it's not that God doesn't want to be gracious. He does, but they just don't care. They're just doing their own thing. So the prophets were very lonely. They were partners with God. So they were overwhelmed by sympathy with God. Um, turn to Micah, chapter 7. I'll be coming to this one tomorrow, spend more time there. But he goes back and forth, and you'll find this. Um, they're, they're so in tune with God that they many times are talking for a few verses about about God speaking, and then they switch into their own experience, and then they switch back to God speaking, and then they switch back to their own experience. So this is often what makes it confusing, I think, for us to read, too. If we just sit down and read one passage, it's hard. If you read the whole book through, it's a lot easier to kind of follow their thought. But that, this is very common in the prophets. It's easier to see in the bigger prophets, and it can be a little bit more confusing when the book is small. But they often do this. They'll go back and forth. It's as if they are so connected with God, that they are almost one with him in their experience. And that kind of goes into the last one too. They, their, their content is experience. So God has them experience what he's experiencing so that they can then speak to the people. So they speak to God, the, ex, the experience of the people, and they speak to the people, the experience of God. So they're this kind of go-between that they understand both of them. So Micah 7, verse 1, woe is me, this is Micah here, for I am like those who gather summer fruits, like those who glean vintage grapes. There's no cluster to eat of the first ripe fruit which my soul desires. The faithful have perished from the earth. There is no one upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood. Every man hunts his brother with a net, that they may successfully do evil with both hands. The prince asks for gifts. The judge seeks a bribe. The great man utters his evil desire. They scheme together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. 
The day of your watchman and your punishment comes. Now shall be their perplexity. Do not trust in a friend. Do not put your confidence in a companion. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your bosom. You can't trust anyone. For son dishonors father. Daughter rises against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. Therefore, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. He knows God, but he doesn't. No one else gets him. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, I will arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me forth to the light. I will see his righteousness. So he's alternating back and forth. This is what God is saying. I'm a sinner along with all these other people, but I also am connected to God and have his message to share to them. So it's this really difficult place that they are put in of knowing their own sin and knowing they must rely only on God, but yet having to call out people for sin as well. It's a really tough spot for them. But they, so they, they feel this incredible sympathy with God, knowing his heart, going through the same experiences he's going through. We'll be talking about Hosea here in a little bit. And Hosea, of course, is the most typical one that we talk about is experiencing what God experienced because the people were completely given over to adultery with other gods and with within themselves, with people. And so God says, in order for you to speak to this, I need you to experience what it's like being married to someone who commits adultery. So he gets it. He gets it because he experienced it. And again, I think this is a last resort by God. He does the same thing with Ezekiel. His wife dies. So a lot of things God has them experience so that they can speak more accurately about God's own heart and experience. Um, so there's a lot more we could do there, but we'll move on to God's original plan. Just a brief comment about this. Again, this kind of goes into how to understand the prophets as a whole, but um, God's original plan, I don't believe, was to ever have to send prophets. Um, he wanted to know his people heart to heart on his own, and he wanted them to be lights in the world. I mean, this is what he says back way in the very beginning, Genesis 12. Um, you don't have to turn there necessarily if you don't want to, but when God first calls Abraham, he says, this is chapter Genesis 12, 1 to 3, get out of your country from your family, from your father's house to a land I will show you, I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, I will make your name great, you shall be a blessing, I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you, and we usually just kind of don't even think about that, but yeah, God's going to make Israel this great nation, but what? why is the purpose of that? The purpose is, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God's purpose was for not for them to just hold this knowledge to themselves and we're so much better than you because we have the true God and you're terrible and we're, you know, well, that's what they did. But God's plan was for them to tell it to the world, but instead they didn't. So right away, they start turning away and God bears long with them, just like he does with the Canaanites. I wish we had time to get into that issue, but God gives the probation the same time to Israel as he gave to the Canaanites, about 400 years. And their iniquity is finally full, and he's like, I can't do anything more. I've done everything I can possibly do. And he does the same thing for Israel. He does everything he can possibly do. He sends prophet after prophet after prophet saying, will you please come back to me? I made this covenant with you. I love you. I'm married to you. Please, 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 please. But they don't. 
they don't. So God sends the prophets with more and more intensity to try to reach them, and they just kill the prophets and don't listen and don't care, and they go into captivity. So, but the prophets are are speaking out of this time of almost going into captivity, and they're saying, if only, if only you'll come back, you won't have to go into captivity. But they realize that probably they're not going to, so they, they have a picture, they have a vision, they say, you know, even if you do go into captivity, God's going to bring you back, and he's going to make this great nation out of you again. If, if you're willing, will you please be willing? So God's original plan was, I don't think, ever to have to have prophets, but they came about because of our sin and our mess and our lack of... Um, lack of studying the word on our own. And I think the same thing kind of applies today. I, I'm always moved by um, some of Ellen White's statements about how, you know, if you'd studied the Bible as you should have, you might not have needed me. And it just always convicts me. I need to be more of a student of the word. And that's what the prophets always call me to as well. They are always pointing you back to the Torah. They're pointing you back to God. They're saying, go back to the to your foundation, study the word for yourself, be a servant of God yourself. You wouldn't need me, but they don't, unfortunately. So classical, number three there um, on who are the minor prophets again. So these are all, except for Zechariah, a little bit of Zechariah, they're all what are we call classical prophets, which mean they don't have apocalyptic elements in them. So it's not like Daniel, where you've got a lot of symbolism and... Um, I have here is some of the things I don't we're not going to go spend a ton of time on this but the idea is that the focus is local and national so their purpose again is to say all right you know we they're focused on Israel they're focused on getting Israel back faithful to God so but that doesn't mean they don't look beyond that they do they just do it in a different way than the apocalyptic prophets do um so their framework, again, is this covenant relationship with God. So they're always taking you back to the covenant. They're always saying the covenant is where, um, and I believe, actually, and um, more and more scholars are seeing this, actually. Skip McCarty at Andrews Rip um, has a powerful book if you want to read more about covenants in granite or ingrained. And he talks about how really there's just one covenant that God makes and there's different manifestations of it at different times, but it's always been that God wants our hearts. He never had rules and regulations in there. He was going to do that in us when we gave him our hearts, and he takes responsibility for that. It's powerful. So that's their, that's their focus, is he wants to bring them back to God's heart. He wants them to return their heart to God. So that's the covenantal picture. Um, Long-time prophecies, by that I mean... You don't have any symbolic numbers. So there's time prophecies, but they give you a full span of time. 40 years in the exile or 70 years are determined for Babylon. So there, there are very specific time frames that happen. There's no symbols involved. Um, three aspects of fulfillment. What I mean by that is that um, you can see this, and we'll, we'll see this more clearly, most clearly, I think, in Zechariah of the minor prophets. You can see it very clearly in Isaiah as well. But their focus is saying, all right, we... We believe, we, we hope, we trust that if you return to God, you'll be faithful and Israel will be this light to the world that they're supposed to be and they'll, everyone will just want to come to Israel and want to follow God and then God will come again. Yay! But they realize that that's probably not going to happen. So they also see that these prophecies are all going to be fulfilled in the Messiah. 
So we're actually, as we go through each of the prophets, we're going to be focused on the messianic focus because I really think that's their focus. Even though they're, they're longing for Israel to come back, they realize that they're not going to. And so they say these prophecies, yes, they're intended for Israel, but they're probably not going to be faithful. So the Messiah, they will all be fulfilled in him. And then through the Messiah, everyone that believes in the Messiah will also have them fulfilled in themselves. And then at the final end of time, when God comes back, the day of the Lord, the real full day of the Lord, then they'll all be fulfilled then too. So it's one fulfillment in who God is in Israel, but it's these aspects, kind of like the covenant, that are different aspects are, are, that they're focusing on. So most of their focus is on the national Israel, but they also look beyond, especially towards the later prophets after they're coming back from the exile and they realize Israel isn't what they're supposed to be, and they're still not following God, and they're really looking to the Messiah, and they're looking beyond that to this final end-time fulfillment of all of these prophecies. So I think we do ourselves, we get ourselves into trouble when we say, well, when we talk about conditionality and unconditionality, it's the last one there, and we say that all of these prophecies were conditional, so Israel that wasn't faithful, so none of them are going to happen. And I really don't think we can go there because that's not what the rest of the Bible does. It's not what the New Testament does. So what have we done wrong? And I think this, this kind of aspect of um, it's conditional for each person, whether they believe it or not. So it was conditional for Israel. They chose not to. So then it became fulfilled in the Messiah. Through the Messiah, we have the opportunity to choose whether we are going to be a part of God's people or not. Are these prophecies going to be fulfilled in us? If we are willing, they happen in a spiritual way and they are applied to us. The New Testament does this. And I believe there's foundations in the Old Testament as to why the New Testament does that. Um, and then they're all going to be fulfilled literally at the end of time when God comes again. So I think it's, we, we get into, prophecy is complicated. And I think this is maybe another reason why we don't address the minor prophets because they don't have these, you know, symbolic things that are, we love and it, it, it's amazing and all the things that God has given us there, but often these messages are much more potent and powerful to what we're dealing with today. And so um, we often, it's easier to just say, well, they're probably not really relevant. They were just talking to Israel. Um, but that's not what the rest of scripture does with it. So we've got to be really careful into how we talk about these things, I think. Um, so their language is poetry. Um, Poetry, Hebrew poetry, again, one of the reasons why the prophets are not read very often, I think. In fact, when I teach Hebrew, I, I don't actually get them into poetry until the third semester, so their second year of Hebrew, because it's hard Hebrew. So if you're reading different versions of, of the prophets, you'll have sometimes very different verses. and be like, how did they get that get from the same Hebrew? It's because the Hebrew is complicated and confusing just like English poetry is, but if then you may add the second thing of learning a dead language on top of that, a different language. It's, so Hebrew poetry has not a lot of the same markers that narratives do, so it's just tough Hebrew. Um, but there are some things that, are, that, are, that you'll be able to see as you're just looking at the English. So you see a lot of repetition. So we, we tend to think of repetition as bad writing in English. For them, it was good writing. So... Repetition, you would want to do that. If you didn't do that, you were a bad writer. So it's just very different ways of thinking. A lot of imagery, of course, in poetry. Um, these vivid imageries, you, we've read some of them already. We'll read some more. Intense emotion. 
um, you just see the heart of the prophet and the heart of God in, the, in these poems. God, and if you look through the Bible, actually most of the time God speaks, it's in poetry, which is kind of cool, I think, actually, that God, you can just see God's heart and just his incredibly creative mind, and I think maybe that's why it's complex too, because it's God's words, and just, ah! Anyway, um, parallelism. So this is how it rhymes. So it rhymes by thought rather than by sound. There are some rhymings by sound. We mentioned one already in Amos, the Ketz and Kaitz. There are some of that. There's plays on words. But a lot of the rhyming happens by thought. Um, and I've got... We used to think there were just like two different kinds. Now there's, we know, I don't even know, there's bazillions more than here, but there's a lot of different ways of parallelism that happens. Some of these you'll recognize, um, but I'll try to explain just briefly going through these. So, so the semantic types of parallelism are parallelism that um, has the same amount of words or a different amount of words on each line. So it goes by number of words. For instance, let me give you an example that will work in English too. Um, Hear this, all peoples, give ear, all inhabitants of the world. Okay, so you've got the two elements, those are only four Hebrew words, um, rather than, you know, whatever, we have 20 English words, but, um, so it's the same number of words in each line. So that would be, a, these kinds of relationships with each other, what happens with semantic. So incomplete is where you're missing a word. So like, example of this would be um, Isaiah 1.3, an ox knows its master, a donkey, the crib of its owner. Okay, so it's missing the word, the verb in the middle on the second line. So these kinds of things are happening in this semantic parallelism that happens. Um, you also have antithetical. These, were, these are where the, the elements are opposing each other, so it's giving you the opposite type of information. Um, this often happens in the Proverbs. Chiastic means it's reversing elements. So... Um, they, they are reversed in order. Um, logical, so logical is a separate category. This is, uh, this happens a lot in the province. Often these are combined in, as well too. I mean, there's people that just spend their lives just analyzing, I, I, it overwhelms me because often they're interconnected, all of this stuff. Um, but a narrative is telling a story through the two lines. So for instance, this is one from Proverbs 19. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish and will not even bring it back up to his mouth. So it's this idea of the, the words, the two lines are telling you a story. That's the narrative element of it. Um, cause and effect, so it's telling you the cause of something and the effect of something else. Sometimes they can ask questions and then there'll be a response. Um, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, which are coming at the end after the exile, they often speak in questions. So we have these questions and responses. We'll see that when we get there. Um, comparison, so comparing two things, this is like this, this is not like that. And then finally, the third category is rhetorical. So this is where you have a lot of this crazy imagery that they use, often the, the, the emblems, the imagery, and they're comparing things one to another and just describing things in terms of imagery. And numbers, again, back to Amos, there, at the very beginning, he lists these eight different nations and all of the things that they've done wrong, and it gives number after number after number after number after number. So I don't expect you to um, understand all of what I just said, but just so you're having an idea of it's much more, much more rich than maybe what you're just reading as you're reading on the surface. So, but you can still get all this in English. I, I teach the prophets class actually often to, I, I mean, I wish... Sometimes I wish it was just to majors, but I'm glad that it's a class that we allow gen ed students to come into as well. 
They don't know Hebrew, but I, they still can see all this. I have them do this once a week on each, on a, on a passage, and they have to analyze the poetry and try to understand it, and they come up with all sorts of different things, but it doesn't really matter. I just want them to think about the fact that you, you can do this in the English as well. So it's not as easy because there's different numbers of words, but anyway, you can get an idea of what's going on there and how they're, how they're working. Themes. Flying by, okay. Um, so there's many more themes in this. These are some of the ones that I find the most helpful and um, beautiful as I'm looking at the prophets. So God's grace, provision, marriage to his people, and that includes anyone who will follow him. So often the prophets, as, as we'll be going through them, they are, they're speaking to everyone. Yes, they're talking, they're talking to Israel, but they're including all the other nations too. And they're saying, God, will you, you know, will you please come back to God? Will you please serve him and worship? And he longs for you. And he has grace for you too. Um, we'll read a passage in Amos tomorrow where God says, I brought um, the Philistines out of Kaftor. Just like he uses the same words for his bringing Israel out of Egypt. So God interacts with and works with other people. I don't believe actually that, that you know, <laughs> Yes, God's idea was for Israel to be the one to reach these people, but they weren't. So God had other ways, and he keeps working with all the peoples. So God's grace goes far beyond Israel. God chose Israel not because they were special, but because he loved them. Because they were little. Actually, Deuteronomy says that. He chose them because they were helpless and little and small, not because they were great and powerful and able to do mighty things for him. So it gives me great hope, you know? Like God isn't looking at people and saying, these people are going to be awesome, so I'm going to choose them. No, he said, these people are tiny and vulnerable, and I'm going to choose them. And so people can see how, how much grace I have and how much blessing I want to give people. Um, so the unconditional promise of the Messiah, that's the second one there. So this is just... Throughout the prophets everywhere, they can't help but talking about it. Every single one of them, even the smallest ones, talk about the, pro the promise of the Messiah. And they, um, they cannot stop talking about him. And it's unconditional. There's no conditions on the Messiah coming. So even whatever the people do, they know that they're going to mess up, but they say, you know, the Messiah is going to come. So we won't have time to go into all of the places where, where it's there, but... It's, it's everywhere. Rebuke of sin and rebellion by God's people. So this is the sad part that the prophets, I think all of them say they don't want to say um, because it's not about God um, attacking a people who don't know. These are people who not only signed on the dotted line, a covenant with God, but they, God rescued them. God did everything for them. God did impossible things for them. And almost immediately, they didn't care. And um, God has reminded me of this often in my life when I tend to, when I look at Israel and I say, you know, how could they be so stupid? You know, I mean, God they, they went through the Red Sea and then, I mean, what were they thinking? And God's like, <clears throat> Rahel, you do this too. You know, I mean, God does some amazing thing in my life. And then the next week, I'm, you know, the, something horrible happens and I'm like, what? care about me and he's like I just did this amazing thing do you not remember so it's so easy for us to call Israel out and often God speaks to my heart through the prophet saying you know you do the same thing will you let me still work in your life even though 
um, you keep turning away. The warning of divine judgment. So again, the prophets are not coming and saying, ha, too late, done, zap. No, they're saying, I'm, I'm giving you every single possible chance that I can. Warning after warning after warning after warning. Eventually, actually, the people do listen. And, and I, I think that those who came during the exile and after the exile, well, during the exile, really, were some of the reasons that the, peop the prophets after the exile don't have to harp on the people quite so much because they did get something. Not enough, but they, they did. They never actually worship other gods after that. So they learned that. They started doing other crazy things, but becoming legalists and whatever. But um, they, they at least stopped that one thing. So the prophets did make a difference. They did help them see some of the things that they were doing wrong. Um, again, a call to repentance for all nations. So we'll, spend, we'll go to Jonah here in a minute. Jonah is not speaking to Israel. He's speaking to Assyria. They're great horrible neighbor who destroyed them. And God is calling to them too. And I, I choose Jonah first because he's actually probably one of the first prophets too. Um, but he, he just really reminds me that it's just not about us. And I think we often, I, I don't know, I, I struggle with that thinking, you know, God, God is only working through Adventists. And yes, he works through Adventists, but He's working through everyone he possibly can and working to reach everyone he possibly can through everyone he possibly can. And so often, you know, we, it's easy to forget that, I think. But God is, God is at work everywhere. And he's, he's, he's working powerfully, mightily. Um, promise of restoration and God's mercy, again, to all who will listen. So, Everywhere, even in the prophets that are the most broken, talking to the most broken times of the people when they're totally given over to evil, there always is hope. There's always a promise of restoration. And God is always saying, you know, if you would only come back to me, there's always restoration. There's always grace. This is the amazing thing to me about God because I don't think I could be that way. Um, and I, you know, the Lord is so merciful. I think we are much harder on ourselves and other people than God ever is. Look through the Bible, through the Old Testament even, which is often relegated to the God was harsh and cruel, um, but he actually hardly ever does the things that the law says. He's almost always gracious. <gasps> You're repenting? Hallelujah! Come back to me. I don't know if you've read the story of Ahab recently. That one always gets to me. You know, he's this horrible king. He kills God's prophets. He, he just is evil and worshiping other gods. But right at the end of his life, he repents. And God's like, oh, repentance. Oh, don't worry. I won't do any of the things to you I said I was going to do because you repented. Hallelujah. And then, of course, he turns back away again. But he, you know, God is just longing for her hearts throughout the whole Bible. And I think we get a misunderstanding of that because we don't think of the prophets and realize that they're at these two critical times when Israel and then Judah were about to be destroyed because of their sin. And so God is doing everything he can to reach them. So I think we get this whole big picture of the Old Testament based on these huge number of prophetic books, but they're all at this one time in God. It's God's last-ditch effort to reach them with his mercy and grace. But even then, he says, all right, the exile is not going to be forever. It's a redemptive exile. It's 
It's a redemptive punishment. That's what God loves to do. He doesn't like to punish to destroy. He loves to punish to redeem. It's always his goal. All right, so Jonah. Jonah is a really cool book. I wish, man, time goes so fast. Okay. Jonah is a book of parallel structures. So you often think of, actually, many of the, many of the minor prophets are in chiasm. So chiasm, those of you who don't know what it is, probably most of you have heard about it, but it's like a mountain climbing structure. So you are climbing a mountain, and I love to climb mountains. I've climbed, actually, I'm going to go take my youth group and climb some more in Colorado this summer. But um, you go up the mountain, you've got to start with these big trees, and then as you're going up and up, you have these smaller trees, and then smaller trees, and then finally no trees. And you have these like big, weird plants, and then those go away, and then there's just nothing except these tiny little plants. And then you get to the top, and then you reverse it going back down, and there's no plants, and then there's tiny little plants, and then the weird plants, and then the smaller trees, and then the bigger trees, and then you're back down. So, and that's exactly what a chiasm is. So it goes in one order, A, B, C, D, and then you get to the top, and then it goes D, C, B, A, going back down. Um, but unlike our way of writing, we don't actually, people do write in chiasms, they just don't realize it today. People still do, which is not as common. But um, the center is the most important in a chiasm. So not the, not the introduction and the conclusion, which is what we often do, and there are other writings that do that too, but in a chiasm, the center is the, is the crucial point. A lot of the prophets are written in chiasms. So the center comes, the, the climax, that take-home point, and then they review it all the way back down, going back down. But Jonah is in panel structure. So chapter 1 matches chapter 3, chapter 2 matches chapter 4. Okay, so we're just going to look at a few of the parallels just so you can get an idea of that. Um, so look at 1 verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for the wickedness has come up against me. Go to 3 verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So he's saying the same thing, just slightly different. Right? I, it's interesting. He says in the first time, cry out against it, their wickedness. And the second time, he's like, all right, Jonah is going to run away. So I need to say, tell him to tell me, tell them exactly what I want them to say. <laughs> so I'm not going to let you choose the message this time. You're going to speak what I want you to speak. I think that's amusing. God is, God is so gracious with Jonah here. Um, so that's one of them. Um, you have three days. So how long was Jonah and the fish? Three days, all right? Then look at chapter 3 on verse 3. Jonah arose, went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. Okay, so you've got these three days and then the three days. We're still debating on what that means. Some people say it took him three days to get through the city, Others, but the cities probably weren't that big then. Um, but other people say it was, you know, a three-day in extent. You have a lot of people that would live in the outskirts of the city. They would come into the city during times of attack. And so they, would, they said that that distance was three days. No one really knows exactly what it means, but the three days are there again. Um, you have the word perish. So in the first chapter, the sailors say this several times. They're like, they're afraid of perishing. And then they call out to God and they say, please don't let us perish. Um, look at verse 14 in chapter 1. They cried out to the Lord and said, we pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life. Do not charge us with innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. 
Um, so that the, the pagan sailors are crying out to God that they may not perish. In chapter 3, who cries out to not perish? Not Jonah. The Ninevites, right? So they're saying, the king is saying in verse 3, verse 7, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, or do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? So it's very interesting because, well, and this gets into similarities in 2 and 4, 1 and 3, you've got these pagan people crying to God, please don't let us perish. And they actually cry to Yahweh. They cry to God by name, which is crazy. Jonah hardly ever does in the book. And in 2 and 4, Jonah is praying basically that he sh can die. So in chapter 2, he's like, he's basically like, I'm going to die. It's a horrible life. You know, you've killed me, God. And then in chapter 4, he's like, just let me die. Please, I want to die because I'm, you know, these people are going to live. So it's this huge opposition between Jonah's prayers to die and the people's prayers, the pagan people's prayers to God to live, to not perish. Um, <coughs> of course. I think that sometimes people that we consider out of the church might have a more positive outlook than yes. we ourselves. That sometimes we only focus on, whoa, all the bad stuff. So and true. they can see God's mercy and ask. That's so true. And I think Jonah speaks strongly to us here. You know, he is the prophet that's sent by God. I mean, he's supposed to be the faithful one, right? He's supposed to be the one that understands God. But what does he say to God in chapter 4? He's like, in chapter 4, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. I mean, he's upset that they're being saved. But you're right. I mean, so often we feel that way. Well, we have the truth. These other people are nothing. Well, I do believe God has given us a message and a special truth. But that doesn't mean these other people are nothing. And it doesn't mean they can't cry out to God and God hear them too. And that we should be looking for that and looking for opportunities to help them see that. As he knows his catechism, what he says in verse 2 there, he prayed to the Lord, he says, Oh, Lord, was this not what I said when I was in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you're gracious and merciful. Slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, relenting from harm. I knew it, I knew it, I knew it, I told you. I told you you were going to save them, and that makes me a false prophet, and so I, you know, I just want to die. And, you know, it's, I'm making it probably more dramatic than he was, but I don't know. He seems kind of dramatic in this. <laughs> he, he's, he's quoting directly from Exodus 34, which is the main text that almost all of the prophets quote from. It's God's own words where he describes who he is. I, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding, abounding in mercy and truth. And having mercy to thousands. And that's probably actually thousands of generations. So he's, he's misapplying. And I think you're right. So often we misapply God's grace and mercy. Yes? The parallelism from 2 to 4 then. The better I think so. Because I think he intentionally leaves it there. I believe Jonah wrote it. I mean, we don't know. No one tells us who wrote it. But if you look, actually, the last text I have there, well, second to last text, 2 Kings 14, um, actually mentions Jonah here again as a faithful prophet. 
Second Kings 14.23. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned 41 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. He restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. So it seems, indi seems to indicate that Jonah was faithful to God. He was a servant of God. He was someone who served God. And we don't know exactly when this was. Was this before he went to Nineveh or after? We're not really told. But I, I tend to think it was... I tend to think it was um, after, but that's just my own hypothesis. I don't know. My impression is that Jonah left a mark on Nineveh. And then modern day Nineveh is Mosul, is that correct? And that was a Christian city. I think ISIS, a lot of Christians made it hard on them now, but it's a Christian city. Is that true? Is Mosul the present day Nineveh? Yes, but between that time, they turned away from God. Because we'll come to Nahum. And Nahum is a prophet directly against Nineveh, and they are destroyed because of their sin. So um, I don't know the full history in between that time, but for a long time Nineveh lay, lay barren. And, and I think, I'm not sure that the present day city is on it, because I know that excavations are going on the Tell, where, which is what happens when you know, one city is destroyed, and then it, the next city just builds on top of that, basically. So you end up with this mountain. Um, it's called a tell, an archaeological tell. So the modern-day city is not actually on that. It's beside it. So, um, but, yeah, I don't know. That's a good, that would be an interesting thing to look into. But I do know that, unfortunately, Nineveh was faithful for a while, and then they turned away from God again. I, I agree. You can't prove it. But there was such a thing as, like, you know, the church dying, then coming to life again, you know, one or two people being faithful. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Um, but I know, I mean, Assyria was the one who ends up destroying Israel. So they're the ones who take them into captivity and completely scatter them and destroy them. So they're one, they actually become, after this, one of the most ruthless nations. Um, they do horrific things to people. Um, but that doesn't mean that, you know, again, I think we often think about it as these whole groups of people, but was everyone that way? I don't think so. You know, I'm sure there were people who were faithful, just like you find in all nations. So... Um, maybe those people stayed true to God, and I, I don't know, but that would, be, that would be a really interesting research project. Cool. I'll expect you to tell me about it. No, I'll just kidding. <laughs> be a, I'll, maybe I'll have one of my students look at it and see if they could figure anything out, but, but it's a really cool. You also mean the ten northern Correct. Yeah. Let's see here. All right. So we have crying out. I think we already mentioned, I mentioned the perishing. You have the crying out of the sailors. Um, in chapter 1, and the king and the people and the animals in chapter 3. Interestingly there, the animals are said to also put on sackcloth and ashes, and this was a common practice in, um, in the ancient Near East. They, be they believed that animals had connection with God, and I actually do too. I think it's not as much as humans do, but there's very good indication that animals have some sort of relationship with God as well. They listen to him. God actually speaks to the fish. He doesn't speak to any of the other nat nature stuff. He just appoints them to do things. When he talks to the fish, he's like, Go, and, you know, it actually says he speaks to the fish and tells him to rescue Jonah. So it's this very interesting thing. And then at the very end of the book, Jonah 4, um, when God is, God is, you know, God is so gentle with Jonah. Because he says in, in verse 8, 
He wished death for himself. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. This is the third time he said this. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? So gentle, just asking questions. And he said, it is right for me to be angry, even to death. But the Lord said, you have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and also many animals. So God didn't want to destroy the city for the animal's sake, as well as for the people's sake. Um, so God is caring here for all of the life that is involved in Nineveh. Um, more connections between 2 and 4. We don't have time to go into all of them, but um, Jonah is praying in both of them, but for life. He's begging for his life in chapter 2, and then he's begging for his death in chapter 4. Um, you have head mentioned. So he says, the waters have come over my head in chapter 2. In chapter 4, you have the head, the plant is coming over his head to give him shade um, from the hot sun, which God brought as well. Um, so there's a lot of interconnections between these, these two groupings of chapters. So it's obviously very intentionally done, because you could tell the story without that. But I think it's reminding you, at least in one case, I think, one way, one thing that this is doing, the purpose of it, is to show you God's second chances, always. I mean, this is his prophet, who should be way more accountable than the, the pagans and the sailors and you know, the Ninevites, and instead he, he's totally turning away from God, but God still gives him a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance. So it's this highlighting these chances that God always longs to give to people, um, even people that are as petulant and crazy as Jonah. But again, like several of you have mentioned, I think that's often something that we need to examine our own hearts with. Where are we when we are looking at other people? Are we acting like Jonah? Um, are we doing what God is asking us to do, even if it's hard? You know, I, I'm sure he was like, what? Like, don't you want me to be a prophet to your own people? Like, why do I need to go to them? They're horrible. I mean, they flay people. They impale them alive. They're, they're horrific. Who, they're not going to care about you. And God's like, no, I want you to go. Go talk to them. Um, go tell them that I, I want to give them another chance. And it's been a good reminder to me. It's so easy for me to write off people, you know? There's no way they'll, they'll come to God. Well, you, you, we don't know that. God knows their hearts. And so every person is someone that, that God can reach still, potentially, if they're willing. Um, the book of contrasts, I've already mentioned some of them, but you've got um, Jonah as this amazing evangelist, probably the most amazing evangelist we have in the Bible. You know, the entire city, 120,000 people all repent in three days. I mean, that's insane. What wonderful luck he's, what wonderful blessings God gives him, and he still is just like, nope, see you bye. Yes, any questions? Well, see, our mm -hmm. message is that uh, Jesus is coming soon, the world is ending, probation is closed. Mm -hmm. And we preach that powerfully, and then the Lord opens. Yes. Said, well, God, now, I knew you were going to give more <laughs> yes, I think you're right. I think you're very right. And I, it's a slightly different situation, but it's very similar. Yes, because I think, I think there is a sense to which we, at least most of the time, are wanting people to repent, but then we get frustrated if God gives more time to them to repent, right? And he doesn't even want them to repent. I mean, he's just like, yeah, the, it's going to be overthrown. And then he goes and sits outside the city and is like, come on. 
destroy them now, you know? So he's, he's just waiting for the destruction to come. So, but you're right, it's very pertinent for us. Um, it's easy to say, come on, God, why aren't you here? Rather than, thank you, Lord, for taking more time because then maybe more people will be reached. Yeah. It's okay. He didn't want to go to America because they were a scumbeer. Hmm. We don't want to go to the drug house because they're scumbeer. I had an aunt who, I had her daughter was paramedic. Hmm. So working with her daughter's friends, going down into the inner city LA, hmm. they have Bible studies with 60 people. Hmm. I mean, these are the people coming in and getting baptized. But they're not the beautiful people. And we don't like, he didn't want to go to Nineveh. Yeah, I think so. This, to me, this story is about Jonah more than it is about Nineveh. You know, it's about his realizations of eventually, hopefully, you hope he realizes. Um, but just this contrast, and this is why I think he does realize, actually, because he's writing in these contrasts. And he's, I think he's recognizing um, his own problems eventually. But it's also hopeful for us because God uses the imperfections of Jonah yes. and his imperfect moment to do his work anyway. It and, and it also shows his true relationship with God. Because yeah. he was talking to God about what he didn't like, mm -hmm. not only what he thought God wanted. Yeah. So that, you know, that, that kind of redeems him a little bit. <laughs> yes, it does. And how often we have misunderstandings about God, you know, and there's many a times when I have, many a time when I have been talking to God and telling him something I'm not, I'm upset with, and God kind of gently helps me realize, you kind of had a wrong picture of me in this situation. And so, yes, I think only as we are talking to God, can he help reframe our perspectives. And Jonah did keep talking to God. And God kept working gently with him in his heart. And he works gently with us too. I mean, I'm amazed with when, because I, I, I spoke a little bit dramatically, but I think also there was a sense to which, you know, when prophets gave a, a, a prophecy that didn't come true, they were often killed. So I think this is part of his sense of, you know, why don't you just kill me now, God? If you're not gonna make my prophecy come true, maybe I should just die. And I think there's, there's actually reflections in the story of Elijah when he's depressed and discouraged. And God, in both cases, comes gently to them and asks them questions and helps them to see a different perspective. So I totally agree with you. I, I don't think it's bashing Jonah. I think it's just a helping us see Jonah's personality and perspective and how we can learn and, and grow from it. I think it is interesting that Jonah, I think of all the prophets, both he knows and he was the most successful. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. Yeah, at least flawed internally. It's, you know, Ezekiel was pretty, probably pretty bad too. <laughs> Ezekiel and Jeremiah, because they were, yes, but as far as completely running away, yes. Like the others at least did it, even though they were like, this is horrible, I hate this, what are you doing, God? But they at least did it, whereas Jonah was like, I don't care, I'm leaving. Yeah, you're right. God, God works through us despite our, our mess. So grateful for that. Okay, let's move on to Hosea. Let's make sure I don't miss anything else here. You can read Joel 2. The, they, the king actually quotes the same passage as Joel 2 does. So he, he knows the king of Nineveh seems to know 
God's character and know this Exodus 34 passage. So there seems to be this element of remembrance that they that he had even. It's really amazing. And Jesus, of course, in Matthew 12, mentions Jonah there. So the sign of Jonah. So he's there's a lot of um, connections with Jonah and the rest of Scripture, but we don't have time to go into them. You can read them there on your own if you would like to. Um, so Hosea. Hosea is full of this imagery of experience, experiential relationship with God. Um, and let's just look, well, you know this story. Um, he, the people are, this is right before Israel falls, okay? So it's Israel, the 10 tribes is about to, the northern kingdom is about to go into captivity and they are worshiping other gods and they're prostituting themselves both literally and spiritually. And God is saying, you know, the only way I'm going to be able to reach them, they haven't heard any other way, is by you experiencing the same thing and talking to them about your own experience with that. So he um, has Hosea marry a prostitute, and I, I think there's very good internal evidence in the text that she already was a prostitute. She didn't become a prostitute afterwards. So um, that he, because otherwise the entire imagery falls down. That's at least one reason that you can see from the English. I think there's good reasons in the Hebrew too. But the entire picture of what God is doing falls apart. Um, he married someone who is already unfaithful and continues to be unfaithful to him. And God says, but I don't want to give up. I still love Israel. And I still want to be in relationship with them. And I want you to be able to experience this same thing. So let's just read some of these passages here that I have. 13, let me not read all of it here, um, starting in verse 1. When Ephraim spoke, trembling, he exalted himself in Israel, but when he offended through Baal worship, he died. Now they sin more and more. They have made for themselves molded images, idols of their silver according to their skill. All of it is the work of craftsmen. Then they say of them, let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. Therefore, they shall be like the morning cloud and like the early dew that passes away, like chaff blown off from a threshing floor and like smoke from a chimney. Yet I am the Lord your God. Ever since the land of Egypt, you shall know no God but me. There is no Savior besides me. I knew you in the wilderness, in the land of great drought. When they had pasture, they were filled. They were filled and their heart was exalted. Therefore, they forgot me. This is exactly what God promised or God predicted would happen. He said, please don't. I worry that when you get to the land I'm going to give you, you're just going to forget and you're not going to care. And he goes on and describes all of their, these other gods that they worship and they go after. Um, so God alternates. You see God's heart in this book, alternating between anger and compassion. And you can imagine um, if your spouse leaves you and becomes a prostitute, you would have this tension. You love them, but they've left you and you're angry. It's this real love does that. If you really love someone, you're going to not be like, if they leave you, just be like, oh, well, whatever, who cares? No, you're going to be like, oh, you're going to be so angry. And then you're going to be like, but come back, please. So it's this tension in God. He has both of these. He's really upset and frustrated because he's done everything for them and they've left him. But he's also hurt and broken and wants them back because he loves them. So it's this, it's this constant um, emotional tension that God goes through. Um, Hosea 6, verse 4. O Ephraim, what shall I do to you? 
Judah, what shall I do to you? For your faithfulness is like a morning cloud. Like the early dew, it goes away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And your judgments are like the light that goes forth. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. I want your heart. But like men, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt treacherously with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers and defiled with blood. As bands of robbers lie in wait for a man, so the company of priests murder on the way to Shechem. They commit lewdness. I have seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel. There is harlotry of Ephraim. Israel is defiled. Also, O Judah, harvest is appointed for you when I return, the captives of my people goes back and forth and back and forth. I don't know what to do with you. I love you. I care about you. Please come back. But what are you doing? How can you do this? It's this back and forth that God exhibits of his emotions and his care for them. And again, you can hear that alternating. Is it Hosea talking? Is it God talking? Is it Hosea talking? Is it God talking? It's both of them, I think, really here. You're, you're seeing both of their hearts coming out in this. The longing for reunion that right before this in, in 5.15, we'll just read 6, 1 to 3. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he is torn, but he will heal us. He is stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and the former rain to the earth. So this, this God's heart is saying, please come back, I'll forgive you, we'll start all over again and it will be, all be wonderful and will you please? I want you, I want your heart. I don't want you to go after these other gods. I don't want you to go after these wrong deeds that you're doing. This um, very literal solidarity with God. I'm not going to read chapter 2. Um, you can read through that because I want to spend these last two minutes on chapter 11. But it, oh, it's very graphic imagery there. Hosea is describing what the people do. And they've left God and they've turned away from him. And they've prostituted themselves after other gods and also after harlots and prostitutes. Um, and it's just a very sad picture. And, but Hosea understands this because he's been through it with his own spouse. So I want to spend the last few minutes on Hosea 11 because I think um, this passage, again, you can immensely see God's character and heart here. Um, we'll just start. I'm going to read it because it's just so powerful. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son as they called them. So they went from them. They sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to carved images. So God's like, I did all this stuff for you. I loved you. I cared for you. But you went away. But... I brought you back, and I taught you how to walk, taking them by their arms. You ever seen, you know, if you see a little kid learning to walk, I mean, they're falling over all the time. But you don't, you know, they fall over, and you don't kick them and say, get up. No. You're like, oh, come on, here, take my hand, and I'll help you walk again. I mean, this is God's picture of how he's dealing with us. When we mess up, when we fall down, he loves to watch us learn to walk. He taught us to learn how to walk. But they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love. I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped down. I fed them. It's this Im imagery of closeness, care, provision. He shall not return to the land of Egypt. The Assyrian shall be his king. They refused to repent. 
The sword shall slash into cities, devour his districts, and consume them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on backsliding from me. Though they call to the Most High, none at all exalt him. But how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I set you like Zeboim? Do you know what those cities are, Adma and Zeboim? Yes. So he doesn't want to destroy them. He's like, please, no, anything but that. My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. I will not come with terror. Please, you deserve death. You've long deserved death. But I want to love you. Will you let me love you? And I believe there's a reason more than just that, that this passage is quoted and applied to Jesus. So if you turn to Matthew 2, or just listen as I read it. Um, you, if you don't want to turn there, you can. But Matthew quotes this passage, actually, to refer to Jesus. And it's when Jesus is coming out of Egypt. So Matthew 2, 14 and 15, When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. So he's quoting directly here from Hosea 11. And actually, and I'll try to do this a little bit where I can. I wish we had more time. But um, this passage has been long used by scholars today um, to say that Matthew was misquoting and didn't understand the Old Testament and was not getting it. Because, I mean, we just read Hosea 11. Is that talking about Jesus? <laughs> I'm playing the devil's advocate a little bit. But, I mean, who's Hosea talking about? Israel, right? I mean, and God's married to them and they've left him and he's bringing them back. I mean, how in the world is this applicable to Jesus? Well, I believe that it is. It's because Matthew is actually doing bigger, broader, more comprehensive exegesis than most people are doing when they're looking at that. They're just looking at Hosea 11.1 1, and they're saying, this is not talking about Jesus at all. It's talking about Israel. Um, but if you think about just a couple of things before we go back to numbers, because I think there's, there's clues in Hosea that this is going beyond as well. It's talking about Israel, yes. But remember back at the beginning we talked about how Israel, it's also these same prophecies are pointing to the Messiah, and then they're pointing to the end of time too, right? So this is one of them. It is talking about Israel, but it's also going beyond. Why? Well, think about the metaphor. What is the imagery we've had so far in Hosea between God and his people? His bride, his spouse. Is this talking about a spouse here? 11, 1. A son. Out of nowhere, you have a son. What is this doing here? This is the first time it's here. Everywhere else in the book, it's husband-wife imagery. Here in this one spot, you have father-son. What's going on? That should make us think. Something else is going on here. Um, there's actually clues before this as well in Hosea 1. You can look these up later. Hosea 1, 11, 3, 5. And then in 11, 5 and 11, Egypt is mentioned several times as not necessarily bad, but as this kind of refuge which people go to. And actually in the beginning of Hosea, God says, I'm going to bring my people out with this Davidic king. Well, David was long gone. So who's that Davidic king? The Messiah. It's pointing forward to the Messiah to come. So you already have this sense of, pointing forward, there's going to be someone to come who's going to fulfill these that's going beyond Israel. But I think um, uh, Matthew is also going back to numbers. We have two minutes.
Numbers 23 and 24. This is Balaam, Balaam's oracles. So Balaam is supposed to curse Israel, right? And Balak is paying him to curse Israel. And he's like, I have to speak what God wants me to speak because I, I screwed up and I messed up anyway. But he gives these amazing oracles. So he gives four oracles or prophecies. The first two are about Israel. Blessings, right? Everything about that, that Israel. And you can read them through. And it says, you know, look at, for instance, 23, um, 21 and 22. He's talking, takes up his oracle and he says about Israel like, Israel is amazing, and look at them, they're all awesome. And 21, he has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. The Lord is God is with him. The shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt. He has strength like a wild ox. So he's talking about what God's done for Israel and what God will do for Israel. But then in chapter 24, things change. And um, Balaam is, Balak is really angry at him, and he says, all right, so Balaam raised his eyes, so it talks, it completely just changes how he does this, 24-2, and he saw Israel, and the Spirit of God came upon him. He took up his oracle and said, and look what he starts with. The utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor. The utterance of the man whose eyes are opened. The utterance of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open. So he's describing something else that he's seeing. In chapter 23, he just saw Israel. Now he's seeing something more. And he says, how lovely are your tents, O Jacob, etc. And then in verse 8, God brings who out of Egypt? Him. And that is in the Hebrew, and a lot of translations have changed it to them because they're like, why would it be him? But it's singular there. So he's noting that this, this messianic figure who is to come, he doesn't give you clues right there who it is, but he gives you a clue in his last oracle, is a him. He's going to, he's going to live out in his life the life of Israel. So this actually forms the foundation for a lot of what the prophets do and comparing the Messiah and his life to that of Israel. So look at then Balaam's last oracle. It's introduced the same way. The utterance of him, this is verse 16 now of chapter 24. Here's the words of God who has the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of tumult. And he goes on and on and he uses the same language actually that's used in Genesis 49 for, for the first description of who this Messiah is going to be. So it's this person to come and there's very many people think that probably the wise men of the East, because Balaam was a person of the East, they heard this prophecy and they knew that Jesus was coming because of the star. They read this about the star. So there's a lot of connections. And I really believe that, that Matthew is doing a whole comprehensive exegesis of the whole Bible in connecting the Messiah with Israel in the Exodus. So he's recognizing that, that just like God brought Israel out of Egypt, God is also going to bring the Messiah out of Egypt. And that Hosea is getting a piece of that, is kind of a segue into what's going to happen with, with the Messiah. There's a lot more connections um, in Hosea that give that indication. In fact, even in chapter 10, right beforehand, you have the mothers weeping for their children, and you have the king of Israel dying, um, and that's paralleled in Matthew 2 with Herod dying and the mothers weeping for their children. So there's just a lot of interconnections between Matthew 2 and Hosea 11 that I think indicate not just that Hosea is, that Matthew's taking these out of context, but actually he's getting a better context than what we usually do when we're reading it. So um, we have to stop. But one question. Can I just ask a question? Yes. When you were talking about um, verses 8 and 9, of chapter 24, 
in in my Bible, um, it said God brings him out of Egypt. Him is not capitalized in any of that. Correct. I'm wondering if they have that incorrect that. I mean, because the him that they're really talking about then really is Christ. I believe so, yes, yeah, but... Because, I mean, it makes more sense if you mm -hmm. see it that way, but they don't do that. But then when you go and you look further on... In 16, um, it, it is. It is. This gets into translations, right? So people doing translations are doing translations as best as they can, but they don't see everything. Is the King James more accurate than I don't think so, no. And remember, the Hebrew has no capitalization. So, you know, they can't look at the, that language to the other language to decide, are we going to capitalize it or not? So they have to go upon interpretation. And I think they have an easier time seeing the, the last oracle of Balaam as referring to, to the Messiah than they do the, the third one. Because, um, because I think they missed that connection with chapter 23. Um, and many translations now, some of the newer ones, will change it to them. I mean, I don't know if any of you have that, but they actually change that phrase I mean, they, they do this often. I, I hate to tell you this, but it, it unfortunately happens because they, they think... It can be. This is why I have my students who don't know them read like five versions. Because then you get a sense for like where are their differences and where do I need to be aware? Because most of the time you don't have that issue. But um, you, if you do that, you can, you can do a pretty good job of figuring out where the issues are. Yeah, you're welcome. Let's close with prayer. Lord, I thank you so much for your grace, for your mercy, for your love, for your compassion with us, for working with us imperfect, crazy people and sharing your message with this world. Lord, please help us to be inspired in our own lives by the prophets to um, better reflect you, to serve you, to follow you, to um, preach your message of, of restoration and, and warning to this world. Thank you so much, Lord. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.